Our Old Testament reading is from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our epistle readings from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace for which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. The child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to uh, Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. 
And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have they treated us so? Because your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his, fa- and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Can we talk about Ephesians 1, specifically verse 10? So Ephesians 1 is a really, really great text. Uh, there's just tons of stuff in there. There's, uh, there's election and predestination. There's adoption. Uh, there's uh, the plan of the Father to rescue the world. There's redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's grace. There's the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our salvation. There's just all kinds of good stuff. But I'd like to today, if I can, talk about uh, just verse 10. We're just going to talk about just verse 10. Where it says, uh, God has made, this is verse 9, uh, God has made in Jesus Christ known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now here's verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay. So let's talk, let's just work our way through verse 10 and talk about what it means. So it starts off by saying that, that God's purpose is a plan for the fullness of time. God has God has had in the past, ever since the beginning, uh, God has had a plan uh, to save the world. That word plan there is, uh, it's a word that has to do with organizational stuff. It actually has the word house built into it. It's like the word house and the word economy. It's somebody who runs a house or runs a business. This is what's going on with this word. It's organizational. God has this plan. He's designed this thing, this whole shebang. God has designed all of this to bring about salvation. Before before Jesus in the Old Testament, God hadn't really tipped his hand too much. We knew that he wanted to save the world, and we knew that he was up to something, but we didn't really know what that was. And God's people, the Jews, they thought it had something to do with them, of course, but they didn't know if it meant that establishing them as a nation or uh, using them to suffer somehow to pay for the sins of the world. There's all sorts of, uh, it's very hazy, very hazy before Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, God reveals all of his cards. This is how he's going to save the world. And we'll talk more about that as we go along here. But for right now, let's just say that the main thing here is that, at the beginning of verse 10, is that God has a plan. The worst part, I think, uh, one of the worst parts of suffering is the sort of meaninglessness to it, the, the the chaos of suffering. So I talk a lot. I talk to a lot of you who go through hard times, and frequently the question will come up, like, "So why? I don't understand this. What is God doing? Why is this happening?" Behind behind that question is this fear that this doesn't mean anything, 
like that I'm going through a tough time and it's just this sort of random evil and there's really no point in it except for the world's an evil place and it's broken and I'm going to hurt. I talked to a lady yesterday. I, I didn't know her. I'd never met her before. She lives at Meridian and uh, her daughter uh, emailed me and asked if I would come and pray with her because a year ago yesterday, her father, her husband had passed away and the girl who got a hold of me, her father. And so there's this, all this is like the elephant in the room when, when we get together is this, they'd been married for 74 years and then it's just all gone. And here's an entire year where everything about her life, everything that sort of order, I'm not even talking now about affection and relationship, but just everything that ordered her life for 74 years, everything that sort of controlled what she did in a sort of, you know, you always come home to the same person. It's all completely gone. And it's not just that she's super, super sad. It's that her life has been untethered from the thing that sort of held it together. And there's this fear that that's all okay. Like this is just, everything is falling apart. Everything is completely random. Physical pain feels like this a lot of times too. A lot of people struggle with physical pain. You know, you you go through the, like the, 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 the pain in your body, but there's also the pain of like, what's the point? What's the use in this? And I can't really have, you know, I just, I know it's a cliche. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to say that God has a plan and it's a cliche. Except for, um, he really does. And I don't mean this in some sort of vague, general sort of, God has a plan for your life. I believe that that's true. But in the Bible, God is writing this story where things work out for glory, where everything turns out well. And the parts that he's putting in the story are necessary to get to the parts at the end where there's glory. And the parts that were in the middle, it doesn't, you don't ever actually understand it. A lot of times you don't understand it. And sometimes we, we, we get little glimpses of understanding here and there, but it's frequently just partial and it's all veiled and shadowy, even the understandings that we do have. Have you ever, do you, have you ever had one of those friends who like really wants to show you? Uh, the video that they have of their knee replacement surgery or something like that. Or those, I've talked to some of you who have gone in for like some sort, you know, knee replacement or hip replacement or something or like open heart surgery. And you, you make this, you make the mistake of like watching the videos on YouTube of like the actual surgery taking place. So like I have no, I, I can't even do basic science, let alone medicinal science. So if you watch even just something like, a, you know, orthopedic surgery is, fairly low level. If you mess that up, it can be repaired. It's not like brain surgery or open heart surgery. But if you watch, you just watch a knee replacement surgery on YouTube, like it's a mess, right? I mean, here's this video and here's this guy's knee. And then somebody comes along and slices into it and pulls it open. And there's all kinds of junk going on inside there. And to to me, it just looks completely pointless. Right? So just decontextualized, if, if you're not aware that there's such a thing as surgery videos on YouTube, and some, you just look at a screen and there's somebody cutting into somebody's body and twisting stuff around and pulling stuff out and yanking on stuff, putting stuff in, you would think that that's like crazy chaotic. That's horror movie stuff, right? That's insane. There's no point to it at all. But if you're a surgeon, hopefully, you know exactly what you're doing. There's, there's a point to it, and the point is repair. It's going to be painful. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be messy. But the surgeon has a plan. And our job as patients 
is to submit to it, submit to the physical therapist when it's all over, and trust that what's going on is not chaotic, but that there is a plan involved. There's organization. People, people know what they're doing. Right? And that's the way our life is like as humans. If we have a choice, you know, you can go through whatever it is that you're going through, and you can say, this is nuts. God is some sort of masochist. He's just torturing me for no, or if you don't believe in God, you could just say this whole, everything's just random. Just random. You could be an existentialist about it. Or you could say, God has a plan to this. And the plan involves suffering because he's trying to do something that's going to be good. I'm not going to even tell you. Like, I don't even know. And if you sat down to me one on one and said, Aaron, here's my specific suffering. What does it mean? I would say the same thing to you. I, I really don't know. Like, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not God. I don't know what he's doing. But I do know that he's using everything to bring about this plan, including the death of his son. It's not chaotic. It's organized. It's efficient. It's also dramatic. We're going to stand back someday and look at the whole story and be blown away by what an amazing story has been written. Here's the second line. The plan for the fullness of time, by the way, the the fullness of time just means that now that Jesus has come, the time has come to reveal the plan. Paul calls it in verse 9, he calls it a mystery. Which in Ephesians, he doesn't mean like Agatha Christie style mystery. He means something that was hidden that we didn't get, and now it's been revealed. It's like the end of the Agatha Christie stories, right? It's when everything's been revealed. God has now revealed his plan, and his plan is Jesus. The plan is, with Jesus, to unite all things in him. This is the next line in verse 10. God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. This is, the, this is the heart of the solution, right? If chaos is the fear, if chaos is the problem, if things being out of control and out of order is the problem that the plan needs to fix, then the solution is that God is going to unite all things in him. Now that word unite there, that's not the usual word that Paul uses for unite. Like Paul talks a lot about you know, God uniting us to him and Jesus Christ. It's not the word he uses there, although it's somewhat included. It's an extremely rare word. And it's a word that, that doesn't mean, it means unite, but it means to sum up. Here's what it means. To bring everything back into order. To take everything and to pull it all together and give it its proper space. If the problem is chaos, the solution is, is that Jesus puts it all back together. If the problem is, is that you tore your UCL, The solution is is that Jesus opens it up and it's bloody and it's messy and it's painful, but he's mending it. He's making it all right again so that it can be used the way he designed it to be used. That's what it means when it says God is going to unite all things together, is he's going to take the chaos of your life, every part of it, and he's going to make it orderly. Things are disorganized. That's low level. Things are out of control. That's upper level. And everything in our life is somewhere in between. I, the, the, the older I get, the more it occurs to me that I don't have control over my feelings. I find myself getting in bad moods, and I don't even really know why. Sometimes I feel like kicking something, and I don't even really know why. Sometimes I'll have these momentary bursts of joy, and I don't even really know where it comes from. Sometimes, uh, you know, so, sometimes my kids will do something really, really sort of like, I mean, they're little, right? It's not like they're stealing cars or anything. But they'll do something like that you would expect. This is like bad, you know? Like, this is, a, this is a common occurrence in my family. I don't have a garage. You don't need to feel sorry for me. It's a choice we made. But my kids will leave one of the doors open, you know? 
and you'll get in the car the next morning and everything will be soaked with dew. That's the kind of thing that like that happens in like, I'm just sort of like calm and really sort of like, like okay, let's, let's do better this time. And then something small will happen. Like there'll be a pair of dirty socks on the floor and I'll lose it. Like I'll just like, I'll just lose my temper. I don't know what's going on with my emotions or my thoughts. And sometimes my speech. I've done it in elders meetings. I've done it in conversations with you. I've done it in the pulpit. I've done it with my wife. I've done it with my friends. I'll say something and I'll, I'll think to myself, that was the dumbest thing anybody's ever said. And you're going to have to go apologize to them. And I don't have any clue where it comes from. My feelings and my thoughts and my actions are completely chaotic sometimes. Physically, this is also the case. So Angela's grandmother just passed away. And before she passed away, she was in one of those places where people who are sick get, right? Where she was in the hospital and they're basically like, you have a choice. Uh, you can take blood thinner. If you don't take blood thinner, you're going to have strokes. If you do take blood thinner, you're going to have internal bleeding. We can take you off the blood thinner so that the internal bleeding doesn't kill you. Then you're probably going to have a stroke. That's, that's our destiny, right? You guys have seen this with, with older relatives or somebody who's really sick. Things just start, sort of start cascading out of control. There's no solution. There's nothing that you can do to solve it. That's the solution that Jesus is trying to fix here. There's relationship problems. You guys know this, that there, there are fractures in your friends or family relationships that there's no solution to anymore. There's no going back. If you come and say to me, what should I do? I'm going to say something trite like, you should go and you should ask them for forgiveness. And you know that like, that's not going to work because it's well past that. Like saying, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Is not going to heal the wounds. Another example, and then we'll move on uh, to actually, the actual solution. The, the, what, what, what the uniting is. So having a conversation with my uh, Lewis and Clark students uh, several years ago about the Israeli-Palestinian situation in Israel. And that's really, you know, what we came, we didn't come to any conclusions, you know, it's a group of community college students and an amateur teacher. It's not like we're actually solving any problems. But when you look at that, a solution, you know, a geopolitical problem, there's actually really no solution. I'm not saying there's not a right thing to do. But no matter what you do, with the problem of Palestinians and Israelis living together on land that they both claim to own, somebody is going to lose, whatever solution you come up with, somebody is going to lose their home. Their home that they, and, and generations prior to them have lived in. What's the solution? There's no solution. It's chaotic. It has fallen apart. There's no order to it. God's plan is to, in Jesus Christ, unite all these chaotic things back to the way he designed them to be. That's what the uniting is. I mean, how does he do it? Look at verse 7 real quick. In verse 7, he says this, In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How can the chaotic be made orderly? How can the unsolvable be solved? And the answer is, in Jesus. That's why he says, to unite all things in him. And when, and when Paul says, in Jesus, he means, God is going to combine me and you in the entire universe into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that what Christ solves on the cross and from the empty tomb works out in solving all the chaotic problems of the universe. How does this happen? 
Have you guys, if you haven't seen Casablanca yet, I'm going to spoil it. Also, if you haven't seen it yet, it was made in 1942. So you're long past the point where I feel bad about spoiling it for you. So Casablanca, the movie with uh, um, Humphrey Bogart, it's about a guy named Rick, and he owns a bar in Casablanca, Morocco, during World War II. Casablanca is controlled by the Germans, right? Casablanca was uh, in Morocco, French territory. And when the Germans uh, controlled, uh, when the Germans overran uh, France in 1940, they controlled Morocco too. Now, Casablanca is filled up with all of these people who are trying to escape Nazi Germany. But they're trapped here because now Morocco is controlled by Nazi Germany. Unless they get permission from the Nazis to leave, they're trapped there. And the only way to get out is to have a letter of transit saying you can move wherever you want, but these are extremely rare. Now, Rick, this Humphrey Bogart's character, the owner of this bar, has come into possession of two letters of transit, which permit him to go anywhere he wants. He also has met the woman who he fell deeply in love with in Paris before the war who was married to a French, a leader of the French underground who she thought had died, been captured and died. And so they fall in love with each other. She finds out that her husband's actually still living. So she leaves Rick, who moves to Morocco and opens up this bar and now has seen her again and finds out that she left me because she was actually married and didn't, you know, I thought her husband had died. Now he has a choice. What is he going to do with these two letters of transit? Rick believes in the cause of fighting Nazi Germany. And so in the story, he's got two choices. He can give these letters of transit to Victor Laszlo, his, the woman he loves, her husband, who is a French freedom fighter. That would support the cause. But he could also, on the other hand, use the letters of transit so that he and this woman who he loves can escape. What's the solution? Are, are you going to fight? Are you going to fight against Nazi Germany? Or are you going to act on behalf of true love? There's really not, somebody's going to get hurt, hurt one way or the other. I'm about to spoil the movie if you haven't seen it. What Rick does is he takes the letters of transit, gives them to Victor Laszlo, forces Ilsa, his wife, to go with him, and then he stays trapped in Casablanca. What he does is he takes the power that he has, the letters of transit, and he uses it to fix an unfixable problem. Check it out. By taking upon himself the pain. He gives up his letters of transit. He stays in Nazi-occupied Casablanca. He carries that on his own shoulders so that he can solve the unsolvable problem. And this is exactly what Jesus does. And when Paul says in verse 7 that Jesus, in Jesus, God has accomplished our redemption, what he means is that God has taken all your unsolvable problems and said, I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to choose, do you want a stroke or do you want internal bleeding? I'm going to fix your entire body someday. I'm not going to choose in your fractured relationships. I'm not going to sit here and choose which one is right. Are you right or is your sister who you've been fighting with for 20 years right? Which one is right? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to carry the wrongness of this broken relationship on my own body and fix this relationship for you. So Jesus is doing He's uniting all things in himself. He's repairing all things. By absorbing all this chaos, Jesus solves the unsolvable problem. Jesus' plan makes our lives make sense. Jesus' organization, the drama that he's writing, the narrative that he's spelling out, makes our stories make sense, makes our stories have good endings. Okay, I'm basically done. I want you to give me three minutes to say one last thing. I just want to talk real briefly about this last line in verse 10. 
Jesus is going to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, that's everything, right? If you're hearing echoes of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's appropriate, you should. Everything that God has created from the very beginning, the goal that Jesus has is to repair all those things. I can talk about strokes, and it's appropriate. I can talk about your house, and it's appropriate. Talk about your soul. I can talk about sin. Talk about relationships. Talk about money. Talk about our desire for pleasure. All of these are appropriate because God is determined to fix everything. Not a single thing is going to be left unredeemed by Jesus Christ. We've sang this hymn three times. Now, and it, maybe we've sang it too much this Christmas season, Joy to the World. But the reason why we're singing it is because that's exactly what, in Joy to the World, is exactly what Isaac Watts is talking about. No more let sin, we can buy that as Christians, no more let sin or sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. And he literally means thorns growing up out of the ground. Just like in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God said, now the ground is going to produce weeds. Just like the weeds in your own yard. I'm not talking metaphorically here. The weeds in your yard, God is going to fix. Even the weeds in your yard, no more let sin or sorrows grow or thorns infest the crown. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Amen.